0: This is Jeff from Startup SAC. Earlier this week, we held another Startup SAC happy hour event, and our guest entrepreneur fielding startup questions from the audience was Ken Wiemit, co-founder of Engage3, a local startup disrupting retail through big data and advanced analytics. Uh, we join in on that with Ken introducing his entrepreneurial background. Take a listen.
1: Thank you for having me out. Um, so I'm here with my brother. Tim, you want to raise your hand? So, uh, you know, you can ask me anything, but any of the hard questions, I'm going to pass over to Tim. <laughs> you guys are co-founders, right? We are. We're co-founders. So we started all our businesses together. Um, so our, our history, we got our start, and we, we have a company, engaged 3. It's in Davis. Um, it's venture-backed. Uh, we, we're a data science company helping retailers with their price. And We got our start in retail pricing when we were little kids. Our parents started a business in Toronto. Um, my dad saw all the store managers running across the stores that collect their competitors' prices. And he thought, why not do that one time and sell it to everybody? So that was a data service back in the 1970s with a manual typewriter, <laughs> pen and pencil and a clipboard. Uh, so as little kids, we were going through the United States and Canada monitoring retailers' prices. Uh, my Ph.D. work was in chemical, uh, chemical engineering, theoretical physics, and my friends were going off to Wall Street to model the financial markets, and I thought, why not apply physics to retail and uh, go back to the family business and do uh, help retailers optimize their prices? So we raised money in the 90s, um, venture money, to start that, and we did really well. We started here in Sacramento. Um, we, didn't, we weren't able to raise the money here in Sacramento, though. And I'm really encouraged to see everybody here at the startup event tonight. It's much different than back in the 90s here in Sacramento. <laughs> it was a desert. We'd go to events uh, in the 90s, and everybody was uh, lawyers or accountants, selling us services, but there are no entrepreneurs, there are no venture capitalists. And this has changed so much here in the last few years. I'm really encouraged to see what's happening. Um, we've got Moneta Ventures here now. There's another fund that's starting at uh, UC Davis. To be about 500 to 750 million dollar fund. So we're seeing a lot more money come in, and uh, things are really developing. The uh, So we we started Chimetrics here, it was totally bootstrapped. Um, when we started it, we had no connections, we had no money, and no experience. Uh, but we had a big idea. So we managed to be able to track money and, and get that off the ground. But it was, uh, it took Living in the garage, selling our cars, riding bikes, um, you know, we didn't have pizza for two years. Um, so you gotta make the sacrifices. Oh my gosh, must top Yeah, that's right. Mac and cheese, top rolling. So uh we we finally raised money and um, what we were told is you know we like you guys, we like the company, but we don't like the location. Uh, that's when we we're in Sacramento. So we had the opportunity to take the funding if we went to San Francisco or Scottsdale. So We went to Scottsdale and we spent 12 years there. Um, we eventually sold that, uh, that company to uh, SAP. We were uh, Inc. Magazine fastest growing company, top 20 fastest growing companies two years in a row before selling it. Uh, I stayed on as SAP's chief scientist and my responsibility is to take the demand signal from the retailer and connect it to SAP's 28 manufacturing industries, and create a demand-driven supply chain, and that gave me the experience. Or that gave me the help me see how inefficiently we push products at consumers. So that manufacturers globally. they um, If you look at the newspapers and you see the ads in the newspaper, all those price discounts are funded by the manufacturer primarily, and that's they call that trade funds. Globally, there's a trillion dollars spent a year on these trade promotions. 67% of those fail to break even. You think that's a major pain point. It's not a new problem. It's been around for decades. So um, when I, my eyes were open to that problem, that was an interesting problem for us. So uh, we, uh, after a couple of years at SAP, it was frustrating being in a, in a big bureaucracy. So we saw the mobile phone come out. We realized that was going to reinvent pricing again. Uh, so we started Engage 3. And the, the concept we started Engage 3 with is we said, you know, instead of pushing at offers at the consumer that they're not even interested in, let's change that whole dynamic. Let's engage the consumer. Let's help them manage their family's shopping list. Um, let's help them... Um, let's tune into what attributes they care about, what they value when they buy products, so we can recommend products align with what they value, what's relevant, uh, and let's help them get better deals on it by making manufacturers compete for their business. Um, so that's the idea of Engage 3, it's, we want to engage the consumer, help provide a service instead of just pushing offers at them, and then optimize the pricing and the purchasing decision through the whole supply chain from the consumer, the retailer, to the uh, manufacturer. And it's about creating a win-win-win through the whole supply chain and making it more efficient. And and the big thing that we really wanna do is create a feedback loop in the economy. We've we've got today, we got this race to the bottom. We've got um, these aggressive discount stores. If you've heard of Aldi or Lidl, um, they're $100 billion retailers from Germany. Aggressive discounters—they're coming to the United States. They plan to open 3,500 stores combined within the next three years, and take $67 billion out of this market. So you got to imagine that's really shaking up the retail space. You got Amazon, um, who's been winning with their dynamic pricing. They forced Walmart to implement dynamic pricing online, and that's shaping up the market, especially after they bought Whole Foods. Um, And then we've got. Walmart doesn't want to lose their price leadership. Last year they announced they're gonna invest six billion dollars to lower prices. Target followed, announcing they're gonna invest billions to lower prices. So while the commodity costs are going up, the retail prices are going down. Uh, And it's getting super competitive, which is a win at our backs, it's really (laughs) helping us. Um, So that's kind of what we set out to do, and we're, we're not there yet. So we've been at it 10 years, and we usually out with a very long-term vision and just work work towards that so we started off with the data we realized to do algorithmic retelling it's really about the data and not many people understand that the algorithm's is the sexy part and that's what they want to do but if you don't have good data it's, it's garbage in garbage out so we started off we realized retailers really need a better platform for the data that collecting the competitive data making sure it's accurate Collected manually, in store. Um, So that means there's a lot of manual errors, like 20, 40% error rates. So we're using technology to help make, improve, get more accurate, improve fine rates, make it more dynamic, leverage online, and store. The other problem they're having is uh, Aldi, the reason that they've been able to take the leadership from Walmart is they have all these private label products, 95% private label. So when Walmart sends their auditors to find out Aldi's price, they look at Walmart's product. They go in. They collect one of all these products. The price for it, but they don't know what to compare it to. You know, is it? It's, they're usually different size. Is it bigger? Is it smaller? Yeah. Is well, there's three tiers of private label. What tier did they pick up? So Walmart doesn't even know what they're looking at. They don't have visibility, and that's happening across the market. Um, and it happens a lot in the fresh, the produce, which is becoming important. How um, you compare an apple. Um, so we work with Whole Foods on that, on a lot of the, the fresh uh, products. Um, so that's a data layer. Once we got the data right, we can help them compare their products to their competitors, help them know the prices. Um, then we're taking in their sales data and we're developing models to so where we can model the consumer demand, forecast, given any pricing scenario, what's gonna be the sales, promotions, and then how do they optimize those prices to, uh, maximize whatever their strategy is whether it be winning market share or more profitability we help them set their strategy and um, execute that uh, and the big area where we see it going is going to one-to-one and leveraging these digital assistants like the Alexa or the Surrey um, to be the new interface to the consumer because that's going to be super easy but give it the intelligence to help it manage the family shopping list and tune into the the Values of the consumer and their objectives, and help them find more relevant products at a better price. So that's what we're doing.
0: Awesome. So, <laughs> who's got the first question? Or you often do. No, back here, Carolyn. Um, so, in the era of Cambridge Analytica and all these other of. Like- security privacy, my question is, as a startup, I mean, maybe you're to the point now where it's not such a big deal, but how do you deal with data concerns and privacy concerns, and security concerns, as a startup?
1: Yeah, so that, that's something that's um, obviously affecting the whole market, and a lot of our customers ask us about that. The first thing is, we don't take any identifiable information. So you just strip everything out? We strip everything out, yeah. Um, that's a that's the that's the first level, <laughs> and then there's a lot of stuff we've got stock compliance. Um, so there's a lot we have to go as a startup. You not of not <laughs> not initially, but just, we're going through the process right
2: uh-huh. now. Okay. Yes. Nice. So I I heard you say that your prices go out and they look they compare things, but they compare it by size. with your smaller. What about quality? Because especially in women's clothing, I don't know if this is true in men's clothing as well. The way they used to make things in the old days is much, much better, lasts longer. So how do you take all that into account if a brand is is really making an effort to uh, put high quality materials? Like in Europe, they have the Eco Text label, mm-hmm. for example, and that's that even takes into account the type of material that you're using next to your body
1: this is a really hard problem for the whole industry and what uh, the retail industry has gotten really good at managing the supply side attributes how big is it how much does it weigh how do you ship it right how much space does it take on the shelf what we're not good at is the demand side attributes how do you compare the quality of the different products or what the consumer you know looks at <clears throat> so that's really what we're, we're filling that hole we're coming in we're helping the retailers manage those attributes for the product so we can help compare the products based on attributes. Um, and through that we get that gap. On the act to manage the attributes. So we've, we've actually spent a lot of money and a lot of time over the last 10 years developing it because it is a hard problem. But what we'll, <clears throat> we'll do is we have algorithms that, decom- that crawl the web and pull attributes off different web pages <laughs> when they're broken out. We uh, have algorithms that take apart the description and decompose it in attributes. Um, We work with a lot of the the merchants or in there correcting. Those algorithms don't get everything right. So we work with the retailers where they're actually involved in correcting (laughs) the attributes. But it's a lot more efficient once you have it based on attributes because if it's manually linked, then it's impossible to uh, maintain. As soon as the assortment changes, that link's broken, you gotta redo it manually. But if it's attributes, it automatically sets <coughs> up. I think there was a question over here
2: somewhere. Well, I got one. I did it
0: my number.
1: Oh, thank how, you. Will
2: competing retailers have a title company interest
1: using the same data? Yeah, with our first company, it was a price optimization too, but it was really narrow. We ran that all the time. If we got Lowe's, we couldn't get Home Depot. we got Walmart, you couldn't get Target. Um, but this, with this company, somehow <clears throat> we've been getting around that, and we've got lots of competitors on, on the platform. Actually, Whole Foods came on. I asked them if they were going to want exclusivity, and they thought about it, and they said, no, I think it's actually better if we have more people using your product because the data will be better. So we've been gotten lucky with that one. Laura? So do you think
2: some of is due to the, uh, how much data science has like risen as something that companies need to be using to be successful. It just seems like it's liberated in the last.
1: <laughs> oh, it seems like the last three months for, for me, it's really just changed dramatically. I've spent the last twenty five years trying to convince retail executives that like computer can do something intelligent, and they just didn't believe it. Um, and all of a sudden, the last couple months. People that have been championed within the organization price optimization, it's like flipped on them, and the boards are saying, Hey, we we want this machine learning, where is it? And they're asking for it. And the expectations went from <coughs> thinking a computer can't do anything smart to it's magically going to do everything. And now we're having to set the expectations the other way. Um, but yeah, there's been a big change.
2: Two questions. Uh, first first, how much what did you validate for actual products? And then the second question is, <coughs> how did you get your first
1: customers? Yeah, that that's a good question. We were what was difficult for us is we were what I call a technology driven company that we saw, oh we can apply physics to retail pricing. That's nothing that retailers were looking for. So at the time, retailers were looking to can I automate this pricing with a, a rule-based system back in the 90s? And that would cost about $100,000 to do. And here we were, two young, naive kids coming in and saying, hey, we can optimize your prices. It's going to cost a million dollars. We're trying to sell something they didn't understand for 10 times the price. Um, you know, any marketing guy would tell us crazy. But what we did is we ended up, we were very confident in our, belief in the value so we would set up control groups Rayleighs is one of the first companies we worked with back in 95 and we'd have the retailers set up a control group where they would price it and we'd get they give us a group of stores we could price it was man against machine and we compare the results and we consistently show that we could drive 100 basis points to the bottom line so 100 basis point one percent is 100 basis points so 1% of revenue bottom line, that means for every billion dollars, we could take 10 million to the bottom line, free money, uh, without changing the position in the market. It's just by sensitive items go down, insensitive items go up. You just spread out the the breadth a little bit. Um, And for the grocery retailers, they're operating that 1% net profit margin, so it was huge. Um, So once we established that, and Albertsons was one of our first customers, and uh, Larry Johnson announced multiple times, he credited us for ma- helping them manage their price image and driving their profitability on his earnings calls. So that put some wind at our back, too. Thanks.
0: Lori, you've asked one. Anybody else? <laughs> Who hasn't asked the question yet? Come on, there we go, back there. are um, you looking at any of industries outside of retail, for example, energy
2: is a big one, right, so in Denmark,
1: yeah, that that's a good question. With uh, our first company, we were, retail is huge. It's a twenty-two globally twenty-two trillion dollar industry. Um, so we can create a big company there. Our first one, I wasn't planning really on going outside of retail, and we had J.P. Morgan Chase uh, call us up and ask us help them with their. Auto, auto loans, rates on auto loans, and um, said, well, you know, we don't know anything about finance, we're just in retail, and I said, well, we look at retail as a kind of a model of what we look at, so we think you can help us, and they talked us into it, <laughs> and uh, so that got us into finance, so it is applicable in a lot of other industries, but right now we're focused on retail, U.S., you know, North America, and then we'll go international from there.
2: So, when you uh, first started out with the, the first company, it was just the two of them. Is that right? mm-hmm. And how far along were you
1: before you started hiring people? So, we started out hiring people. We had no money, but we hired people right away. <laughs> <laughs> so, how did we do that? <laughs> what we did is we, um, we gave them stock. So, I had some of my colleagues who did their PhDs with me. They worked a couple of years with uh, just equity, no salary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had another a developer, Jeff Smith. He was one of our first uh, employees. And he worked close to a year, I think, no stock. And that gave him, when we sold the company, that gave him the money to start Revionics here in Sacramento. Another
0: Sacramento
3: success. Mm hmm. Uh Last Monday, I've been to artificial intelligence data science meetup. So, and uh, there was like twenty people, and all of them told that uh, Sacramento data science market and uh, like uh, number of professionals in this field are uh, like very very tight. Not so many professionals mm-hmm. in this field. How do you find right people for your uh, product right now in this area, or you? Outsourcing or in the area you have noticed. So, how do you drive the engineering, engineering
1: side? So, the data scientist is a really tough position to fill right now. Um, and just to give you guys an idea of the data science market. There's, um, it's estimated that there'll be a hundred and ninety thousand data science jobs this year, opening But there's only fifty five thousand people with that experience so it's it's always a good position to be in if you're a data scientist um and it's going to get worse it's been growing at 2012 is about when it started if you look at a graph it's the number one emerging job on linkedin and it's been growing about 40 percent year over year growth uh u.s department of labor is predicting that by 2026 i think it is there'll be eight 11.5 million jobs so that's growing. It's I think it's sixty percent a year. So they're expecting to accelerate the next few years. <coughs> um, so that, that's been a challenge. So how we solved that? We we set up right next to Davis. We got great relationship with the university, and we hire a lot of PhDs out of Davis.
3: What's the um, what's your biggest uh, mistake in your best decision?
1: My biggest mistake. I might have to t- turn that one over to Tim. <laughs> My biggest mistake, I would say, would be um, going after the consumer market. You know, In hindsight, so when we start, our first company was B2B. When we started this one, we started out B2B the first year. And then we were going to do a deal with Rayleighs. And right when that was being sold to the board, after a year going through legal and everything, the CEO resigned. And like yeah. you, you think of the CEO's guy, you got the thing made. And when he was selling it, he resigned. So when that was gone, I got together as venture capitalists, and we thought, well, the b- biggest opportunity is go b to c um, And if that doesn't work, we can pivot back. So we went that path. We didn't have this, the DNA to do B2C model. So we ended up having to pivot. But that was an expensive uh, mistake. Best decision, partnering with my brother.
3: Yeah. Uh, nice. Thank you. Were you in Stealth Mode for long? How long were you in
1: Stealth Mode? Running? Yeah, Yeah, we were. So our first company was Stealth Mode, but probably a couple of years, huh? Ninety. It, we, you know, we were, I was still in college at the time, so it was ninety-one to ninety-five, I think, until we finally came out with what we were doing. Uh, but it wasn't necessarily because we wanted to be stealth, but it was just kind of working out all the technology before we felt ready to go to the retailers. Brenda? How did you calculate how
0: much
3: equity you give to your employees and how
2: did you invest in the work for you with no
1: salary? <laughs> <laughs> They're just knocking on the door. <laughs> um, what? <coughs> it's A lot of it's a business plan. So creating a business plan that people can buy into, a vision that they can buy into, and the commitment. Like they would see Tim and I's commitment, and that, that a lot of time would make them realize that you know, we, they could see our belief, and then they'd come along with that. Um, then it was finding people that were in a position that they could do that. You know That they could find a way where their wife made a lot of money, or their parents were covering them, or some way that they could invest that time. <laughs> and I I've learned never to assume people can't do it. Like a lot of times, people just assume no way can do that, so they don't ask. But you have to ask. Um, and then the other part was <coughs> incorporating as a C corp so we could give out uh, equity, uh, and then knowing how to value the equity. That, that's the harder part. And that's the part I'm
3: more, most interested in. Where can I go to learn how to evaluate that? We are Delaware corp, and we're actually thinking about doing. Do you have any
1: resources you could recommend? Yeah, you know, when we started out here back in the 90s, like we found we saw Jill Zatias picture in the paper. I don't know if you know him. And uh, so we went to him and he helped us out and he really helped give us a lot of the guidance on, on how to structure that. Um, but usually what you do is you look at a comparable companies. Like what's if you look at the VC deals that are being funded. Right? You can, um, and if you have a friend that's a corporate attorney, they might have access to the database, the venture database. They can tell you the deals. But if you can find comparables and then you kind of benchmark against that, um, it's usually multiples of revenue. But if you don't have revenue, that's it's a little harder. Um, but, yeah, just something to kind of bridge so it's realistic uh, valuation. You know, valuations are kind of all over the board, but you just kind of triangulate the best you can. <laughs> you can but the people have to believe it you know? <laughs> and the, the, you gotta be careful too is yeah you might be able to get people to believe a, an aggressive revenue plan but it really sucks that you know a year later and people are like hey we're not hitting the revenues this stock isn't worth what it was supposed to be and they're feeling like you burned them and that's a really bad position to be in too What's that? So that could kill you. Right? Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. A question. Um, it's interesting that you have a company in Davis where a lot of companies choose you know, from elsewhere to go to San Francisco or somewhere in the Bay Area. But other than the cost of living you know, driving these businesses out, some people believe the culture is the toxic themselves. You have to follow a certain type of path to be successful. I'd be interested in the Get your
1: take on just
2: from the outside in. Yes. There's a lot of things going on. There's AI, there's yeah, all kinds of stuff, right? Some of these things are the same old technology, but being in the new bottle all
1: it becomes somewhat, you know. When uh, Tim and I started this company, we are in Arizona, and we thought, we looked around, we thought, where's the best place to put the business? And we were starting to have to recruit people to Arizona, so we realized we need to be somewhere where there's talent. So we decided on uh, San Francisco and we started the company in San Francisco. And we were there about five years. And I would, the thing that really struck me is I told my recruiter, I said, Look, I don't want to see any resumes where the person hasn't been in the company in at least three years. The next day, he comes back and he says, I cannot show you any resumes.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that was like, that's kind of a strong signal. And so you're hiring people and they're mercenaries there in the Bay Area, and they're just looking for a little experience to jump to get a better title, higher pay, jump, jump, and you don't know, to be building the company with you. Um, so one of my board members, uh, Bob Medeiros, he's a founder of Silicon Valley Bank, so he saw the whole Silicon Valley grow up. Um, he was a professor at Stanford before starting Silicon Valley Bank. He suggested that I uh, come to Davis. Um, it was what, we work with a lot of grocers, that's the front end of the food supply chain. Davis is the number one ag school in the world. Um, so he, he thought there would be a better environment. So I tried it. We had an office in both places for a couple years, ran them in parallel. And that really gave me a good feeling of the differences in the two markets. And it was night and day. I had my, um, my guy that's my CEO right now, I hired him four years ago right out of school, undergrad. Um, Within the first two weeks, I sent him to Toronto on his own to present to a $20 billion retailer. Um, And he did a better presentation than a guy that I had that was uh, an executive, a marketing executive from a retail technology company, billion-dollar company. He ran sales and marketing. And this kid did a better presentation than he did right out the gate. Um, and that told me everything I need to know. I closed up the San Francisco office, let those people go, <laughs> and built right out of Davis.
2: Kind of on that note, you mentioned earlier that local funding, when you were trying to get mm-hmm. funding earlier, you couldn't get anything locally. I know you just closed up some B yeah. funding, congrats by the way. Thank you. Was any of that local, or was that Valley funding that's
1: now more Yeah, it's, some of the money's <coughs> local, so Moneta Ventures is here. <coughs> and uh, they've, they've been a great supporter. Um, if you guys aren't familiar with Monetta Ventures, they're in Folsom. Uh, great, they're great people. And they've really helped us out. They've been a great um, you know, advisor and, and help. Uh, and then the other money we raise, and they're, they're a smaller fund, well, they're, they're getting bigger, close to 100 million now. Um, and they're investing 70% here in uh, Sacramento, early stage. The other investors we have, um, we ended up, I was in Silicon Valley and, you know, doing the typical Sand Hill Road tour. And one of the guys sets me aside and he goes, You know, I, I really wanted to, I, I knew we wouldn't invest, but you just looked interesting, so I wanted to talk to you. He says, But I got to tell you, you're probably wasting your time here in Silicon Valley. I'm like, Why is that? He goes, Well, one, you're in retail. They don't like retail. Two, he goes, You're in Sacramento. It's like, too far. So we're like, Really, that's too too far. Um, I I thought they'd changed that attitude, you know, in the last twenty years. So, uh, but what we found is there's other venture capitalists around the country that they do not want to compete with Silicon Valley or New York. So they're looking for out of the way places. And how they measure that is how many plane hops do I have to make to get to that place? (laughs) If it's three hops, are really excited. So uh, we started talking with those. We targeting those VC. They're looking for you know these out of the way deals. And when I was talking to them, they, I, I started realizing they didn't see us as one of those out of the way places. They figured that Silicon Valley covered us. So all the VC, we're kind of in a dead zone here. You know, they figured Silicon Valley is going to compete, but Silicon Valley doesn't even want to come into Sacramento. Um so once we figured that out, then we started t- teaching them that. We said, look, everybody thinks Silicon so, Valley comes here, but they don't. And then they go, Oh my god, that's exciting, you <laughs> know? Cool. But you mentioned uh that you have a PhD mm-hmm. and that you hired PhD from UC Davis. Mm-hmm. Can you describe what type of work the PhD does as opposed to I would imagine
2: you also hire people
1: right out of bachelor's degree. Yeah, we do. Um so we use the PhDs for, we we do a lot of mathematical modeling where we'll um, develop models of how consumers will react to price, promotion, seasonality, how all these things affect sales, optimizing the prices. So all that stuff is what the PhDs work on, it's a data science. Uh, and then some more boring stuff, like just how you get the data through the system. Uh, and then we have a lot of programmers that, that we hire to, to do more Classical front end, back end development, uh, and then mark marketing people and be, yeah, many people. We're, we're about fifty people now.
2: Are you hiring?
1: We are. We are hiring. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> and we'll are? be we're going to be closing another venture round here uh, by the end of the year, and we'll be really ramping up in the, the year. We'll be ramping up hiring again. 50. Yeah.
2: All based
1: out of, uh, Most, mostly here. Um, I got some sales people kind of spread out and we use some offshore development.
3: So, uh, when are you no longer a start?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good question. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Uh, do you have an exit strategy? I, th- I think that usually once you start to get in that growth mode and you're raising money to grow instead of develop your first product, and then you're yeah, you're leaving that startup phase. So are you are you in
0: that growth mode
1: yet? Yeah. yeah, we're we're in the growth mode. We have invention. How many inventions do you have on the market? How many I'm, inventions do you have on the market? Oh, inventions. So. The first company we had about twenty patents, and I've got two granted now, and twenty in the pipeline for for this company.
2: Are they software
1: patents?
2: Yeah. Is it for a
3: process?
1: Yeah. So in the in the nineties, um, early nineties, when we first had the idea, we wanted to protect <coughs> it, so we went to a. Uh, Patent attorney, and we talked to him about getting a patent, and he says you can't patent a mathematical formula. And we're, I'm like, well, there's got to be a way to protect ourselves. You know, this is an innovative idea. Isn't there a way to protect it, somebody from copying it? And he says, no, the patents are just made for you know physical things. So I, I have a bad memory sometimes, and it comes convenient. And I forgot that I talked to him, and a couple of years later, <laughs> I talked to another attorney. And and then that's just when they started granting software patents. Yeah, and so then we that's when we started filing the patents. Huh.
2: You, I was going to say like, we, we did, it for a we did behavioral analytic software for uh, for network
1: yeah.
2: cyber security And uh, we we did patent all of that stuff. Yeah, we and now you're telling me yeah. that this is not much for recent
1: <laughs> Yeah, we were just talking, what's your name again? Otello. We were just talking about patents a while ago, and I'm actually getting really frustrated with the whole patent process. Um, And one, to your point, the accountability. In a few weeks on the internet, on the
2: YouTube, I make a patent search video, and all of you guys
1: can see it. Yeah, Yeah, I recommend you guys watch that. But it's... um, the patent process, it might work for physical things. Pretty good software is a mess right now. A couple of years ago, they had a case called uh, Alice, and they basically said unless this software invention is tied to physical hardware, doing something physical, they're not going to let it through. So the patent attorneys just stopped letting anything go through, and there's this huge pileup. You know, like the last five years. And so here you are, you paid all your fees for to get these patents, you paid all the attorney all the money to draft the claims, and they changed the rules. <laughs> and it's That's bullshit. Awesome.
2: And it could change again. And
1: you pay- mm-hmm. yeah. So,
0: what do you think are the key attributes required to be a successful startup founder? What do you think has been critical to your success?
1: I think. Um, One thing I think is really important and gets underestimated. You know, I look at my kids and they don't want to commit to a relationship. They don't want to commit to a career. They want to be flexible. I think it's about making a commitment. And when you make a commitment, you're making a commitment. You're not you're not going to do some stuff, right? You're not going to spend some money because you're going to do that thing. And it's about really having that commitment. And people feel that. And that's what attracts people. Think that's one of the most important ones. And then just tenacity of not picking no, you know, and finding a way to get stuff done. Um, I think those are two key ones. And the other is finding mentors, listening to people and finding mentors. So I've always, uh, Tim and I have always found mentors and people to help us. And uh, my COO right now is amazing at that. So I actually look for that when I hire people, that they are people that find outside mentors to help them. So who are your top mentors? My, uh, Bob Medeiros, the founder of Silicon Valley Bank. Um, another one, I, I mean, there's a lot, but uh, Jill Zatia, our first attorney, he was good too.
2: key investments
1: yeah I think you know our first ones with our uh, I'll take it back to our first company because that's probably more relevant where a lot of you guys are our second company was different because we had a lot of money from our first one but the first company um, we, we were really careful with money because um, we didn't have any so a lot of it was in our time. So I looked at my time, you know, I didn't make any money, but I was living off credit cards, but I valued my time at $1,000 an hour. And I thought about how, where I put my time. Not that I could make a thousand bucks an hour, but I looked at my time like that. And so I was really careful about where I invested my time.
2: Would you mind talking about the impact of your family, you mentioned you have
1: kids. Mm-hmm.
2: So- when
1: they were small, and assuming that you were already doing this, what daddy does. And your spouse, um, was she with you the first and second time? Yes. Um, so my my kids, uh, they were little and we were starting the business. And we had the business in the garage. And Tim lived in the garage, and we had whiteboards up there and our computers. Um, so the kids would always come in and work on the whiteboard. And then and once we got an office, they would come in. And my, our parents always took us out and I got, I knew I learned a lot from that, being involved in the business. So I always tried to get my kids involved in the business um, and let them get that experience. And you know, and how much of it is really interested in wanting. Um, so I, I always saw it as a good experience and there's always fun stuff to talk about with kids. And my wife, um, I told her, you know, anything that comes good comes with a good sacrifice. She learned that when we sold the cars, <laughs> she had to ride the bike with the kids to get groceries. <laughs> no, it's but that's that's actually really important too. Is to have a spouse that supports you and uh, will make those sacrifices. I have a question: How do you get people to work for you for
0: free and have found lost in the state? So you well, said you were paying people stock. Well, first,
1: the state first has to have jurisdiction over you. If they don't, the laws don't apply.
0: again.
1: I said the state has to have jurisdiction. So you didn't do No, this I'm, I'm teasing you. Um, <laughs> I, I, hate, I hate the government. You guys got some... You're on the microphone here. Yeah. Oh, that's fine. I'll tell them, too. No, they just slow everything down, right? It's like... Um, but... These these laws are they are a killer. So that's getting the hard part. It's like people were willing to work for equity. The last few years has been getting worse. So what we've had to do is pay minimum wage, right? Some cash. So we've had to use some cash. I didn't have to do that with the first company. Is and that
0: because you were in Arizona, or just because of the time?
1: You were in I think it was the time. No, I don't know. Maybe I did something illegal. But I don't know. You'd rather uh, for forgiveness than <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, we. My controller was very clear with us that we need to pay minimum wage or we'd be breaking the law. So we've been, so we what we do is we'd hire people for equity, but then we'd have to pay minimum wage. But then that really cut down the number of people we could hire and work with. So you got all these people are out of work; they want to do something. We want, we need help. We want to give them experience and give them skill. But we, the government's stopping us from doing that. So,
0: Brenda?
3: How much of your success is based on luck versus hard work?
1: It's <laughs> all <laughs> Yeah, that's it. So that's a really good question. I, I'm thinking about
2: that. Be prepared because they'll ask me that question on how I built this. If you ever make it to the future.
1: So I'm thinking about, so I, I'm thinking about the, the company we have now, Engage3. We started it 10 years ago. We started a consumer market. And that, we weren't able to raise money. At that point, most people would have called it quits. But we we saw it through and went through some really tough times. And we got through that, and now the market's taking off. So we were early, you know, we were 10 10 years early. Uh, But we held out, so we were at the right place. Now it's taking off. Now it's lucky you. It's
0: a preparation.
1: Yeah, it's about being prepared.
0: follows those who are prepared,
1: is saying. Exactly. Yeah, how I always look at it is any project, any business I started, I look at it as training for the next one. You're just getting those skills. So the next one you can do faster, bigger.
2: So um, I guess business schools and startup start uh, incubators trying to teach people how to be. A startup mm-hmm. or intramural things like that and i've talked to so many of them and i just feel like you guys just have something that the rest of us don't have and i don't quite know what that is my question is more about making tough decisions so obviously you're successful you, you had a you know great exit from the previous company but it's hard to believe that your path to success was a straight one so when you're faced with tough challenges like mm-hmm. the CEO ceo's or some other things, mm-hmm. what did you have to do? What was the narrative that you had to yourself? Whether you should quit or you should what continue, you know, what's the rationale behind continuing? And to take that question um, a different way, there are companies that are somewhat struggling that still couldn't find their right path. What would you tell founders that are struggling?
1: You know, three, four yeah. years, what would you do? I, I think, you know, everybody has to, learn to listen to their gut, right, and know what's right for them. So I really can't say what's right for anybody else. For me, I just, that quit just never enters my mind. Like, it just doesn't happen. Um, It's just, we're we're confident what we're going to do, and we're going to do it. Um, You know, I don't know where that comes from, but I think that's a, I think it's well through practice. Like we always had jobs when we were kids, right? Running paper routes, you know, mowing lawns. Uh, Tim started a business in high school. Uh, and you just, you get kind of addicted to that, the business part of it too, right? It's fun. So you'd say
0: entrepreneurship is in your DNA then?
1: Yeah, it helps. Like that's why I bring my kids into work because it really helps when the kids get that experience at a young age. It's kind of like learning a language learn it young then it's fluid for you. And it's really good when parents bring their kids into work yeah, and give them responsibility in the business. Well so they try to break it down to so teach people how to
2: understand the different concepts between vision and white. Well I think the people who
1: actually
2: have vision so even know how to spell the
1: book. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. It's like it's when they
2: automatically know what to do, but they don't even know that and the rest of us trying to understand
1: that concept and what it entails yeah i i've been thinking about that and i think part of it's the school systems are set up they teach the rote re- memorization right where you're just going to come in you're told what to say and you repeat it as opposed to an apprenticeship right an apprenticeship where you're working with somebody that's knowledgeable and you're learning the, the trade i think that's a natural way to learn i think when people learn like that they're more they're confident in what they know when they're just taught like to repeat something, they're not confident, they don't know how to use that knowledge. Who
0: hasn't asked a question yet?
1: Anybody just
0: dying to ask a question, (laughs) but you haven't had a chance yet. Um, Somebody, come on back here, this is kind of back here, nobody, come on, go. Um, So you said that each job is kind of to be more prepared for the next job, to be Mm -hmm. bigger. What's
1: your next plan? Like, what's your next big entrepreneurial dream and goal? Well,
0: he hit on it. I want to get ready of government. Anything else? Come on. Somebody who hasn't. I'll, I'll come back to you in a minute if nobody's asked. Come on. I just want to give everybody a chance. Uh, nobody. Okay. Just Oh, by
3: the way. I was talking about as far as you don't know what to do, that's when you need a partner that knows what to do. He's the the dreamer. He's the person that dreams up all these things that you like to do. And then I run the office. So if you don't know how to do that part, you need to find a partner
2: that knows how to do that part.
0: Maybe talk about you and your brother.
1: Yeah, that's a great example. My my mom and dad were like that. My dad was the dreamer and my mom ran the business. Right. And I see that ha- I see that a lot, yeah. And you taking your kids
0: in there, kids today need to be they they need to have responsibility.
2: Because mm-hmm. they've never taught that.
3: And we need to start teaching this generation those perspectives.
1: Because mm-hmm.
3: if we don't, the, we're
2: gonna be
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay
2: supply chain is the
1: buzzword, are you seeing more you know, retailers transition to a demand chain instead? Is that what are trying to... So, yeah, that was a big, when, back in the early 2000s, we were talking a lot about that, like we should be looking at this more as a demand chain than a supply chain, but those end doesn't end up being kind of just buzzwords, you know? So, we're making that happen now, but we're not describing it that
0: way. Uh-huh.
3: So you just signed up to be advisor to all
1: the people. <laughs> <laughs> all
3: of us wanting to do something,
1: are going to sign you as an advisor. That's great, yeah, I love to help. So
0: maybe, talk, oh, piggybacking off that, um, talk a little bit about how, what changes you've seen here in the local startup ecosystem uh, since you came back from Scottsdale in San Francisco and what you think uh, we can do to grow better.
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, um, you know, earlier you are telling me about everybody's getting, is concerned about raising money, right? And I think that's one of the hardest things here in the Sacramento area was the first thing was access to venture capital, and then the second one was other experienced entrepreneurs that you could learn from. Um, and what I'm really encouraged by is like this group here tonight, and I'm seeing more and more events like this uh, in Sacramento that I didn't see before. You know, it was all people trying to sell us services, but there wasn't other entrepreneurs. There wasn't any venture capitalists. Now we've got Moneta Ventures here investing 75% of the funds locally. Um, this, this environment's really taking up. And yeah, I mentioned there's another fund. I'm, it should be closing by the end of the year. It'll be 500 million to 750 million. And it's gonna be focused on spending um, technology out of UC Davis to create a more flexible supply chain. A platform play where they're looking at multiple companies, bringing up multiple companies. Can you say who that is? I can't yet, yeah. Yeah.
0: All right, so we still got a little more time. One or two more last questions, anybody? Come on, over here.
3: uh, A lot of startups, the early stage and your stage when you've got millions of investments, they reduce costs using uh, outsourcing to India or Eastern Europe. Uh, what are uh, pros and cons uh, like at this early stage and at your stage of using outsourcing, and what is your model? Your
1: yeah, yeah, good, good questions. Uh, my my first company around 2000 is it started to become fashionable to outsource, right? So all your board members come in and go, "What's your outsourcing plan?" <laughs> you know, I can save money, and as you're doing innovative. Projects, you really need people together, right? Close, and the outsourcing works better when it's more um, something more routine or use translate. But when it's something that's more innovative, it makes it harder. Um, what I started working with one group. I'll give you one example of a nightmare I had. I was working with a firm in India. Um, it was outsourcing to, and the. I, they put a bad developer on the project so he wasn't just obvious things he wasn't getting and so i'd have to get on the phone and just talk him through almost to tell him how to write the code and so they'd have his supervisor on the phone with me and then that wasn't working so they had his supervisor supervisor and the supervisor with this one bad program and then that wasn't working pretty soon there was like four or five levels up, and I went, "Nah, this is nuts. (laughs) Um, So that was a bad experience, and if you ever see that starting to stack up like that, just cut it. Then we found a guy in uh, Czech Republic that was amazing, and he'd managed teams before, so he started building up a team, and we got a pretty good team over there now. We've been working with him five years, so. Um, So it's, it's just finding the right group. But yeah, the cost can be a lot lower. But it's it's hard to find somebody that's good to work with.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, One last question. Anybody dying to ask a question? And if not, I'll turn it over to Laura. I know you've got to have a question. No? I know. I, no, I have, no, I have, have no a filler question. if you need.
2: Okay. What else? So he said uh, buzzwords in early 2K is what did you mm-hmm. Demand?
0: Demand.
1: Demand. Yeah, demand? oh, demand chain. Yeah,
2: yeah, is, yeah right. 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 What is it today? What's your buzzword? what are people talking about as that next big thing? It, yeah. IoT, the, AI, blockchain. what's the, yeah, blockchain.
1: Yeah, it's big data, now I think it's starting to move to uh, AI machine learning, and they're kind of interchangeable. Is it real or is it just fluff? Is it just talk, or does it actually, do you see value there? Yeah, so we, we were doing really AI machine learning, whatever you call it, back in the 90s, and when I was raising venture money, I was describing it as AI. And one venture capitalist set me aside and he goes, Look, we lost a lot of money on this back in the 80s. He goes, I recommend you call it something else. <laughs> so we we, changed, we never even call it AI. But now AI, the VC are really excited about AI. And yeah, I think AI is kind of like the internet. You know, we were in that early version where it we saw potential, but it wasn't sustainable. And then it, it came down, but now I think it's really, really taking off.
0: Industry 4.0, would you say? Yeah.
1: Well, the predictions are in retail that AI is going to replace 30% of the merchandising jobs in three years. So the boards are getting super excited about AI, they're wanting that, but they're not being realistic
0: about it. Right. I mean, it's still kind of a buzzword. Yeah. How fewer children? <laughs> okay,
2: uh thank you Ken.